right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you. Um, thank you, Pastor Stan, and uh, thanks, Doug. You know, um, I used to be a youth pastor, and Doug and I have served on many different occasions together, so I feel like I'm at home today. That's okay. You know, so um, I, don't, um, I don't feel like I'm a guest. I feel at home. And, uh, you know, anyways, we're all part of the same church. You know, it's, it's one church under God's authority, so it's a real honor and pleasure to be with you, to be able to speak today. Um, I also want to give a special word of honor to Pastor Mike as well. Um, you know, him and I, back in the day when he was still a youth pastor, he was one of the original group of youth pastors when I was stepping first into youth ministry, and he was a good friend of mine. And, you know, last year, when, a couple of years ago, when I was going through a really tough and difficult time, uh, Mike was really for me in a, in a big, was really there for me in a really big way. So even though he's not here today, um, I've been very blessed by his ministry, as I'm sure many of you guys in this room have. So um, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to Pastor Mike this morning as well. So um, can we pray before we start? I'd love to pray with everybody and we're going to get started today. So Father God, I thank you so much that um, no matter where we are or, or what church we're part of, Lord, um, we're here to worship you. And there's brothers and sisters gathered, uh, not just here in this room, not just here in this city, but all over the world, Lord, who have met um, together to worship you today. So, Father, that's my prayer. I hope that your name would be glorified, your name would be lifted up, and you would speak through me as we open your word together today. Thank you for this, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, today is the start of Holy Week. Um, it's Palm Sunday, and so um, as Pastor Stan was saying, you know, it's, it's the triumphant entry uh, that's often preached on today. But, you know, um, when I was invited to preach, um, Pastor Stan said, you know, you don't have to, there's no particular um, passage for you to follow. You can choose what you want. And so I panicked. I did what all past, good pastors do. I panicked. Okay, what do I preach on? Um, where do I go with this? Um, what does God want me to say to this community? You know, as we look towards Easter, this year, actually, Easter is hitting home, particularly in a, in a weird kind of way, because I turned 33 this year. And so when you tell people you turn 33, especially amongst Christians, people seem to like to remind me, oh, 33 was the age when, you know, Jesus died at age 33. Do you remember that? You know, when Jesus was 33, he, he went to be crucified. I think they mean to be encouraging when they say something like that, but my usual response is just, oh, yeah, I guess so. Thank you. I don't really know what to say. So, you know, Easter has been on my mind, and so as I prayed of, um, you, know, what, you know, what does God want to speak um, to this community? Uh, the passage that we have for today, and it's John 18, 28 to 38, if you want to get ready for that in your, in your Bibles, um, the idea for this passage actually came to me as I was going on a run. So usually when I run, I like to listen to a podcast or different things, and this particular run I was going on, um, this podcast came on, and it's all about these true crime stories that happened all over the world. And this particular story was about a man, Grimes. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard the, um, the story of a man named Willie Grimes. Um, as a young man, uh, this is him as an older man now, but as a young man, Willie Grimes was accused and convicted of rape. The only problem was... Willie Grimes was an innocent man. And to cut a long story short, what happened was uh, there was a woman living in a small town in America at the time, and she had become the victim of rape. In her description to the police, um, she wasn't really sure who had raped her. It was a very confusing time, um, as these things usually are. She only knew that it was a black man. Willie Grimes, as you can see, is a black man. 
At the scene of the crime, they found black Afro hair. The hair was then incorrectly matched with Willie Grimes' black Afro hair. And in the end, despite the fact that Willie had a rock-solid alibi of where he was at the time uh, the rape occurred, he had stellar character references, he was convicted and sentenced to life plus nine years in prison. And it wasn't until 24 years later, 24 years that an organization that helps people who have been wrongly convicted um, picked up his case and proved his innocence. And this guy, Willie Grimes, had to sit for 24 years in jail knowing full well he was innocent before being given back his freedom. Now, as I was listening to this, it got me thinking. A couple of things caught my attention. They did a few um, interviews with um, Willie, and one of the first things that caught me about him was just his voice. You know, he had this really gentle um, voice with a southern twang, like when I go back to Texas and I meet with my wife's family, everybody talks a little bit like this, you know. His voice was a little bit like that. And even the way he talked, it seemed like there's no way a man who speaks like this could be doing such a horrible crime. But the second thing was his attitude. Very quickly, he said, I had to forgive. I had to forgive the people who put me in jail. I had to forgive the people who wrongly convicted me. Because otherwise, he knew that it would eat him up inside. The bitterness and the anger sitting there for all that time would have destroyed his soul. And holding on to that anger and bitterness would just have made things worse. So he said, you know, from the beginning, I chose to forgive. But one of the most astounding things about this man was that on multiple occasions, multiple occasions, Willie Grimes was offered um, a plea bargain. The, people, um, the judge came to him and said, look, all you have to do is admit you're guilty. If you admit you're guilty, you do a few um, rehabilitation courses, you can be let out much sooner. But he refused. Each time he was offered an opportunity like that, he refused. And it got me thinking, why? Why didn't he just take the deal? You know, within this 24 years in prison, almost every single one of his family members passed away. He missed out on so much life. Why didn't he just take the deal? And in his own words, Willie Grimes said this, I would rather lay there the rest of my life and die in there before I would sign a paper saying that I was guilty of something that I did not do. I thought to myself, man, this, this is it. The only, reason, the only reason why he could suffer all that time in prison was because he knew what the truth was. And the truth was, he was innocent. Now, unfortunately, Innocent people suffering for things they don't do is nothing new in this world. And throughout the Bible, God's heart and passion for justice is very apparent. He has a lot to say about what is right and what is just and what he thinks about when he sees people treated unjustly. Micah 6.8 tells us this. He has shown you, immortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Brothers and sisters, one of the first things I want us to remember today is this, that we all, all of us in this room, have a calling to justice. There's a theologian in the States called Ken Witzmer, and he's one of the leading theologians in the justice movement in, in America right now, and he's written a few books, and one of the books is called Pursuing Justice. And in it is a quote that says this, Injustice is a cold, unrelenting reality. It can be tempting for us to use our comfort to ignore injustice 
or to rationalize it away. But God would have us join his work. Ask yourself this morning, have there been any situations of injustice that you have seen recently? And if there is, how has God called you to step into that, in, to that area of injustice, to step in that area of problem, to make a difference? You know, and this, this um, Willie Grimes' story made me think about this, this chapter in John 18, because in this chapter is perhaps one of the most serious cases of injustice in all of Scripture. Yes, Willie Grimes might have been innocent of the crime he was convicted for. He was innocent of the charges brought against him. He never committed rape. He was innocent of that crime, but he was not a perfect man. He still had sin in his life. He, like you and me, was a sinner. But however, when we get to John 18 and we see Jesus standing trial in front of Pilate, we have to remember that this was not a man who was just innocent of the crimes that he was being presented with. Jesus was fully sinless and and not guilty altogether. And that is why I say this is one of the most serious pictures of injustice that we ever see in Scripture. And John paints a very vivid picture of us of what happened on that evening. And I think there's a lot we can learn from it. So um, if you uh, have your Bibles ready, we're going to start in verse 28, John 18, 28. And it says this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. This passage starts by telling us that by now it was early morning. It was early morning. This meant that prior to this, prior to this, Jesus had just been through a whole long evening of suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but it got me thinking, have you ever been through a really long, agonizing evening? Maybe it was when you were a teenager, and that girl who promised to call you back said, I'm going to call you tonight, and you sit by the phone, and you stare at waiting and waiting and waiting for that phone to ring, and it's 2 a.m., and it still hasn't rung, and you're wondering what's gone wrong. Maybe it was a delayed flight that caused you to miss a connecting flight, and you had to spend the night at Los Angeles International Airport, where for some reason, every 20 minutes, I don't know if you've been there, but every 20 minutes, welcome to Los Angeles International Airport, and you're trying to sleep, and it's just noisy, and it's loud, and you can't get any rest. Or perhaps it was hiking up the tallest mountain in Hong Kong at 4 a.m. in the morning during the trail walker, and it's cold, and it's wet, and you have blisters on your feet, and you've already been walking for 10 hours, and the end is still not in sight. Or maybe it was the night before your wedding, and at the rehearsal dinner, you thought it would be a good idea to order your steak rare. And once you got home, you spend the entire evening throwing up in the toilet, wondering, was it the steak, or am I just really nervous for my wedding tomorrow? Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. Of course, all these things are just really trivial compared to what Jesus had just been through. And I imagine this was probably one of the longest nights on his half, on his uh, longest nights of his life, maybe even tougher than the 40 days and 40 nights he spent in the wilderness alone. In the book of Luke, it tells us that before this, he had been struggling with his father, praying and pleading till he was sweating blood. Matthew Mark in, in the books of Matthew and Mark, it tells us that he was sorrowful until the point of death. 
You have to remember, Jesus has just been betrayed by one of his disciples. He has been illegally arrested. He has been mocked, slapped, spit on. All of his disciples have abandoned him. And his one friend who he thought he could rely on has looked him in the eye and said, I don't know this man. If ever somebody knew what it's like to go through a long period and a time of suffering, it's Jesus. He's been through the worst of it. Brothers and sisters, how about you this, in this room this morning? Are you finding yourself going through a trial? Are you walking through a period of pain? I hope this, this, just this short story helps you to know that Jesus knows exactly how you feel. When you're praying and wondering if Jesus understands what you're going through, remember in Hebrews 4 it tells us that we have this great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. And Jesus walks alongside us and the Holy Spirit is with us as we go through these trials and tribulations of our lives. So take courage if you're walking through a time of trial because He is with you. And so the day begins to break. But this suffering for Jesus isn't over yet. It's going to continue. In fact, it gets even worse. And even more horrible things are about to happen to Jesus. And they're all going to be done under the influence of this very small group of people, the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the time. Now, this is quite typical when we see cases of injustice. It often happens when we have a small group of people with power and influence using it to their own selfish gains and agendas rather than using it to demonstrate love, mercy, and grace to others. And as these Jewish leaders take, um, this, the, take Jesus to Pilate with the intention of having him convicted, condemned, and eventually to be executed. Which, of course, it's extremely ironic, right? These people are trying to you know, do the, all these horrible things. They're plotting murder, basically. But at the same time, they're still so concerned with being ceremonially, ceremonially clean so they can appear righteous and eat the Passover meal. This was truly a reflection of the Pharisees' hearts. And this is what Jesus is talking about in, the, in, in his past ministry when he calls them out and says, these Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. They look clean on the outside, but inside they're full of evil. Now again, it's easy for us to point our fingers and say, yes, those Pharisees, they're horrible people. I would never be like that. But I think this is an invitation for us to search our own hearts. For me, I know as a pastor, as a leader, even as a Christian, it's very, very easy to make myself look good on the outside. It's easy for me to say all the right things and act in all the right way, make myself look very impressive in front of people, but in the reality of my heart is that I'm not honoring God. I am not exalting the name of Jesus. I'm just interested in exalting my own name. And I know that I constantly need to be checking my heart. Am I doing things for the glory of God, or am I doing things just to make myself look better? Do I approach people and situations with my own agenda? Or am I approaching people with God's love? Am I more concerned what other people think of me? Or am I more concerned about what God thinks of me? And the more these Pharisees talk, the more these Pharisees scheme, the more their hearts are revealed. And it's very clear that their intentions for Jesus are not pure at all. Let's read on. It says in verse 29, So Pilate, came out to them and asked, 
What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Now this man, Pilate, historians tell us that Pilate had a, had a reputation for violence. But even so, even so, he wasn't just going to put, an innocent, put a man to death without knowing the reasons why. He first had to find out what Jesus had done wrong. So essentially, this is what Jesus, this is what, sorry, Pilate is asking. What charges are you bringing against this man? The real question is, what has he done wrong? Pilate's trying to find out, why are you bringing him to me? What has he done wrong? Now, what have you done wrong? Or what, yeah, this is a question that makes me very nervous. You know, because um, actually it reminds me of my time in school. Uh, Pastor Stan just now said that I grew up in a British boarding school, and I did. You know, I, when I was 11, I went off to a British uh, school in, in the UK, and that's where I spent most of my teenage years. And most of the time, you know, boarding school was great. It was fine. I made a lot of friends, had a lot of fun. Um, but it, it, it's a bit like uh, my wife used to ask me, what is, what is boarding school like? Because it's not a very American thing, I guess. And I told her, boarding school, imagine Harry Potter, but without magic. Okay, that is kind of what boarding school is like. And over in charge of you is your housemaster. And my housemaster was a man called Tim Chatelainer. We used to call him TC. And TC was a great housemaster, actually. He took really good care of us. And most of the time, um, TC and I got along really well. Apart from... Apart from every now and then, I would have to sit down and have a very awkward conversation with him. And that awkward conversation always started with this question. So, Ellison, tell me, what did you do wrong today? <laughs> now, the reason why this was an awkward conversation to me, because on any given day, there was more than one thing that I'd probably done wrong. Right? So um, actually, probably not much has changed since I left school in that, in that regard, but there was always more than one thing. So I was never really sure what he was talking about. So I, the, the, the situation it put me in, I didn't want to sit down and him ask me, what did you do wrong, and me tell him something that he didn't already know. Okay? So um, maybe he was, you know, so was, oh, sorry, sir, um, I skipped out on biology today. I'm really sorry I won't do it again. To which he would reply, what, you missed biology? I was talking about you going to town without my permission and someone saw you in the supermarket just now. So, you know, it, it, like I said, really awkward, uh, really awkward conversations I would have to have every now and then. Now, if this question was asked to Jesus, he would have no trouble answering it. Why? Because as we've already talked about, he was truly innocent. Jesus was perfect and sinless. But of course, this isn't the first time Jesus has accused of doing something wrong. Actually, the, the reply that um, the Pharisees give, if he were not a criminal, is actually a bit more serious than that. The, the more, more direct translation would be, this is one who does evil. Now, throughout his ministry, many times people accuse Jesus of being an evil person or a sinner. If you think back, there's one time where after he drove out a demon, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, it's only by Beelzebub, that the, prince, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. These accusations weren't new to Jesus. Think back again, right? Jesus always accused of different things. He was accused of breaking the Sabbath because he chose to heal people and love people on that day. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he hung out with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. 
He was accused of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God and he, he claimed he could forgive people of their sins. He was accused of being a troublemaker because he stood up against injustice and would speak against those who were causing these injustices. You see the irony now of the Pharisees has turned into straight-up hypocrisy. These leaders were supposed to be upholders of God's law. And again, we just talked about it just now, right? What does God's law say? Thou shalt not murder. And here they are plotting the murder of the one who wrote the law in the first place. It's a full-on display of hypocrisy. But again, again, I think this is an invitation for us to reach into our hearts and a reminder for us how easy it is, how easy it is in our own hearts for the spirits of self-righteousness and hypocrisy to rise up. And there are times when we're very easy and quick to point the finger at someone else, whilst at the same time, we're unwilling to deal with the sin that it's in our own lives. And self-righteousness, this kind of behavior, it's toxic and divisive. And a lot of innocent people have been hurt because people have acted in a self-righteous way. But at the same time, this is also a reminder of this, that if we are confident to what God has called us to do, if it's right and if it's good, we need to stand up and remain firm and, and, stand, and stand firm in our calling. And this is the kind of steadfastness that Jesus demonstrates here. Because the truth is, if we really are followers of Jesus, then we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised if people start accusing us of different things. People might say, you're too passionate about loving God. People might say you shouldn't reach out to these certain people groups. People might accuse you of being crazy because you're putting your faith in front of your career or a relationship. Jesus said this himself, right? There are promises from God that we love to claim. But what are the promises that says, in this world you would have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus sees and feels your pain. But he will also be the one who will stand with you if you're doing what he has called you to do. Now, of course, this is easier said than done. And it's often easy to to not see God in our situations. And often we find ourselves in situations and say, you know, how is God still in this? I know I felt this tension in my own life. You know, this year alone, if we're only in March, I've had two friends two close friends who have been struck with cancer. Yesterday, I came from a funeral from a friend's dad who passed away from cancer. Multiple friends of mine have had the marriages break down since the beginning of the year. I've had friends who have suffered from miscarriages. We're only three months into the year, and things have happened throughout this week in my my own family that have got me asking the question, where is God in all this? I've I've been trying to process it, actually, and and you know, I just feel like I've been on autopilot for the past week or so because I just don't know where is God in this and, and how am I going to navigate myself, my family, and my friends through all these things they're going through. Where is God in all of this? We've all asked that question in, in our lives, I'm sure. And the situation that Jesus finds himself in, if there was anyone who could ask that situation, probably Jesus might have been asking it right now, where is my Father in all of this? 
And it seems as though there are other forces at play, forces more powerful that seem to be pulling the strings, which is, think I, I, which is why I think it's amazing that John reminds us, actually, there's one person in charge of this situation. There is someone who is in charge. And it's the person who looks the most weak and helpless at this point. The problem who was standing there, probably bound in chains, actually had this situation excuse me, in the palm of his hands. Because we read in John 18.32, it says this, This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knew the death he was about to face. He knew he would be arrested. He knew that he would eventually be crucified, and he humbly submits himself to that process. Ultimately, it's not the scheming of the religious leaders or the power of Pilate that's deciding Jesus' fate. Jesus has been and will continue to be in charge of this situation. Jesus knew the death he was going to die, and he willingly walks in obedience. Why? Because of his love for us. Now, I know the words that Jesus loves you are often spoken from the pulpit, so much that maybe it almost sounds like a cliche sometimes. But this is one of the most important things I guess I can say today, is that Jesus loves you. And it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss. We've already seen the Pharisees miss this point. Instead of seeing Jesus as a representation of God's love, they're seeing him as a threat to their religious authority. And during his ministry, right, Jesus respond, people responded to Jesus because he was one who taught with authority. People flocked to meet Jesus because he could heal the sick. He amazed people because he pronounced forgiveness of sin. And as his popularity grew, as his message of love was spread, the religious leaders couldn't stand the fact that this person was having more influence than they were. People began paying more attention to them than they did to him than to them. And because of this, they completely miss out of Jesus' message of love, forgiveness, reconciliation, and grace. So it's easy to miss. Now, there's another man in this story that we've touched on called Pilate. He, too, is missing what Jesus' message is really about. We mentioned just now that Pilate was a man with a reputation for violence. But actually, his reputation was a bit um, worse than this. Pilate was a Roman governor at the time. And Israel was under Roman occupation. And historians say he was a a violent man, but he was also stubborn and he was brutal. He was the kind of man that wouldn't think twice about sending troops in and using violence to to just kill people and put down any kind of rebellion that he saw was a threat to his power. So if the religious leaders thought um, Jesus was a threat to their authority, Pilate was thinking, this man could be a threat to my power. So this is why he asked Jesus this question. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now throughout his life, different people that encounter Jesus often have a kind of misunderstanding of what his true identity really is. Right? If you remember some stories, even his disciples at one point didn't really understand who he was. After he calmed the sea and the wind and the waves stopped, the disciples looked at each other and said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? So it's interesting, Jesus, and Pilate asked Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews? 
Now, sometimes we have to realize that when people ask questions, what they're really saying is not what they're saying, I mean, is not what they really mean. You have to read between the lines. We all do this on some level, right? I know sometimes, for example, when my wife asks me, What do you want to eat? It's a trap, right? What do you want to eat? She isn't really asking me what my food preference is. She's really trying to tell me, okay, I want you to read my mind right now so that the suggestion you give matches exactly with what I had originally planned for us to eat for dinner, okay? You have to read between the lines sometimes. And I think Pilate's question is a little bit like this. He's not really concerned with who Jesus is. He doesn't really want to know if he's the king of the Jews. He doesn't really care too much about the Jewish people, actually. He was just there to rule them. Like I said, the question he was really trying to ask is this. Are you going to be a threat to my power? Are you going to be a threat to my power? Pilate was concerned about Jesus and potentially interfering with his power over the the area he was governing. And so, the way Jesus responds is also very typical. Is this your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? This is a tactic Jesus often uses in answering questions with another question. For example, when the Pharisees challenge him and say, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? What does he say? Whose likeness is description is on this coin? When the disciples come to him and say, Where are we going to find food to feed all these people? He asks them, How many loaves do you have? When they're in the boat and about to sink, he says, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He responds to them, Why do you have so little faith? And Jesus, I think, often responds in this way because rather than giving a a prescriptive answer to us, he wants us to discover the answer for ourselves. And at the heart of why Jesus wants to connect with us, he doesn't just want to dictate to us how we live. This is actually an invitation into a relationship with Jesus. And actually, I think what Jesus was doing here, he was using this as an invitation to connect with Pilate. What he was really asking Pilate was, do you really want to know who I am? Do you really want to know who I am? And church, I think this is a question that Jesus continues to ask us today. Think about your relationship with Jesus. Do you really want to get to know him better? There might be people in this room, I'm sure, who are wrestling with that question. You know, you've heard that Jesus is this amazing Savior. You've heard that he has unconditional grace. But all this is just secondhand information. And I love that you, know, you have the candle lit and this, there's, there's a sister in Christ who's celebrating right now because she's discovered for herself what this means to have a true relationship with God. Have you really experienced a relationship with Jesus for yourself. And I'll say it again. Do you really know that Jesus loves you? He loves all of us. I'm sure Jesus loved Pilate too, which is now he was giving him a chance to interact with him, to connect with him. But the fact is, right, Jesus did have more authority than the Pharisees. He did have more authority than Pilate in this moment. And because he has more authority, he declares himself at this moment as the true king. He says this, if we read on, in his conversation with Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you a king? He says, yes, but look at this. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
Lots of people claim the title to be king. At school, I learned about King Henry VIII, and who had many wives, and King Richard I, who was called Richard the Lionheart. Elvis Presley is the king of rock and roll. LeBron James is the king of basketball. Um, and T'Challa is the king of Wakanda, right? But there is only one real and true king, and this is King Jesus. And Jesus was not the kind of king people were expecting. This is why Jesus says, in fact, my kingdom is from another place. The, sources of, the source of power of Jesus' kingdom is not land or geographic location or anything earthly. It is something far greater than that. And as a true king, Jesus has all authority over everything in this earth. Those are some of his last words before he ascended to heaven, right? All authority has been given to me. We follow King Jesus. And as a king, his purpose on this world was, was very clear. Like I said, he came to love us. But he says something very interesting here. Jesus says this in this passage. My aim as a king is to testify to the truth. My aim, I came to testify to the truth. Now the word truth is very interesting. From the beginning of time, people have often misconstrued what this word truth means. If you think back to Genesis, Adam and Eve mixed up what the truth was. They distorted the truth of God's word and believed what the enemy was saying instead. The Israelites often forgot what the truth was. The truth was that God had delivered them out of of captivity in Egypt, but they started following other gods. In Romans, Paul tells us that we we are often prone to exchanging God's truth for a lie. And in today's world, the word truth, right, in a time of alternative facts and in a time of social media bombardment and fake news, it's so hard to tell what the truth really is. And this is why Pilate himself wrestles with the question, what is truth? But church, this is it. This is the biggest This is the most awesome truth. This is the only truth you ever really need to know. Jesus loves you and wants a relationship with you. Like really Grimes, who we talked about in the beginning, perhaps Jesus could have taken the easy way out. He could have chosen another route, but he didn't. Why? Because he loves you. And he knew that he had to go to the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And this is one of the only reasons why we can walk freely in relationship with God today is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. In John 14, 6, it says this. Jesus says this about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But this is the beautiful thing about having a relationship with Jesus. It's not just about knowing and receiving this truth. Having a relationship with Jesus is not just an intellectual thing we hold in our heads or warm, fuzzy feeling that we feel inside. It actually becomes a way of living. Because if you look in the passage, Jesus says this, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So not only do we know the truth, we listen to the truth. And that listening turns into a way we live. We don't need to doubt the truth because we we see the truth lived out in Jesus' life. And because we know what the truth is, we can know how Jesus wants us to live. So what does listening 
and knowing the truth look like? I think it looks like this. Living in the truth looks like loving those around us, especially those who are hard to love. Just as when Jesus was looking at Pilate, I believe he was reaching to him in love. Truth looks like standing up to injustice and speaking up against it when you see it. Just as Jesus was standing and and going to the cross for all injustices that's ever been committed in the world. The truth is about having clean and pure hearts. Not just appearing to be righteous on the outside, but having your heart really reflect the core of who God is. Truth is loving and approaching people with God's love rather than your own agenda. Truth looks like humility, choosing to serve rather choosing to serve rather to be served. Truth looks like sacrifice, giving up our lives for those around us. And truth looks like courage, being obedient to God, even though it might be very costly for us. Brothers and sisters, as we look to Easter, I pray that these are truths we hold on to. I pray these are truths that make us identify us as who we are as followers of King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for your life on this earth. Lord, because you walked among us, because you interacted with us, you became like us, Lord. We thank you so much for that. And Lord, we know now you sit victorious on your throne in heaven, leading us, guiding us, praying for us, watching over us, pouring your love out on us. So, Father, I pray that we would, Lord, you would search our hearts. Father, that we would not be people who are identified by anything else, but people would know us because your love works through us. And as we look at people around us, in our families, around us, in our workplace, the people you've surrounded us with, Father, I pray that we walk in the truth of who you've declared yourself to be and that that truth would change us and motivate us that your love would compel us to love people the way you have loved us. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you for this in your beautiful name. Amen.